Good afternoon, Montreal. You're listening to CKUT 90.3 FM. It's 2.03 on a Thursday afternoon. You're listening to Movement Museum. I'm Alison Burns, here with my co-hosts Jen Doan and J.D. Papillon. Uh, and you can find more Movement Museum at movementmuseum.com. You can uh, find our page on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Or you can even download our podcast off of iTunes. Uh, and you can also talk back at us at movement at ckut.ca. We want to get to it because we've got a lot to do today, starting with a guest. JD, did you want to introduce us? Uh, our guest today is uh, Ashley Watkin, who is dancing very soon in uh, two of the three pieces presented in the Nicolas Quentin retrospective uh, called Trois Romances. Uh, we're really excited to have Ashley. She has danced uh, for some really fantastic choreographers. She has a lot of stage presence. And I, I, I think that, um, you know, people who have missed Nicolas Quentin's work should really use this occasion to go see uh, pieces in Trois Romans. Uh, so, hi, Ashley. How are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. Uh, so, why don't you tell us a bit more about yourself, uh, like where you've been trained, like what your progress in Montreal, in the Montreal scene has been like? Um, I came to Montreal almost 10 years ago, and uh, I came to go to Concordia, where I did the dance program. And since then, I've been working as a freelance dancer in Montreal. Um, voilà. So some of the choreographers you've danced for, Nicola Quentin, you've danced for uh, Dorian Naskinader. Yes, uh, Dana Michelle, um, quite quite a bit with Dana Michelle. Worked, uh, started working with Andrew Tay as well, and I've worked with Sasha Kleinsplatz. Um, both of them are in Wants and Needs. Um, also, I started working with Marie Bellon this summer for a show coming up in January. And... Um, Yeah, those are kind of the main people I've been working with. Little unknown choreographers, up and coming, you know. <laughs> that that was sarcasm. I, I don't know if it caught well on the radio. Um, <laughs> so why don't you tell us a bit more about uh, Trois Romans with Nicolas Quentin. You, you, you danced for two of his pieces in that trilogy. What was the process like when you started the first piece, uh, Belle Manière? Belle Manière? Um, I met Nicola. I mean, I, I knew him, who he was, um, but we met actually at Recommandation 63 at Tangente. It was a project that Normand Marcy was organizing, and he invited um, <clears throat> a number of choreographers in Montreal to come and kind of have an open laboratory process. So each choreographer was presenting work over two weeks, and this happened over three weeks. So there was a nice mix. Choreographers got to share a program with, with different people every week. And he uh, did a, his first proposition with Normand, Merci. And I was uh, dancing for Milan Gervais. And I just, I, I, I loved what he did. And, and I'm, I'm fairly shy and I don't usually kind of jump on people. But in the, the Loge, I, yeah, I, I really just told him that I, I loved his proposition and I think I, it's, it was kind of a, a messy thing that involved a, a tarte al creme and soda bottle exploding and, and this section is actually in Belle Manière um, and I said yeah I would love to like salir l'espace comme ça. Um, it's okay if I speak in French and English yeah, sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Um, And so he actually, he just, he emailed me a few days after that. Um, he said he w was happy with what he had done with Normand. He wanted to try something new. 
And so we did a solo for Recommandation 63, which was created basically in one or two rehearsals. And that process went really well. And after that, he invited me to be a, a part of Belmanière. Well, he comes from a, a very different background from yours. Like you come from a more classical contemporary dance background. He comes from clowning, circus arts, theater. Yeah. Um, what was this meeting between the two universes like at first for you? For me, it, it in a sense, even though I, I don't come from the same background as, as he does, it was kind of like coming home <laughs> in, in a way. Um, it's it's a big challenge to work with Nicolas Quentin, but um, there's a sense of confidence in that um, he You know, he, he doesn't look for people that have the same training as him. He really looks for uh, um, a, a, some, a, a person, a, a person that speaks to him. And, um, and even though that wasn't necessarily said in the beginning, that was definitely felt. So I felt safe to, to, to go into this, you know, really different way of working. So you just mentioned earlier that it was a challenge to work with Nicolas. So can you elaborate a little bit? Like, what were some of the things that that challenged you, and how did how did he stretch you? Um, well, I think the biggest challenge is not necessarily working with him, but but working with the work. <laughs> um, Peter James, who's in Miguel, uh, has said a few times, you know, it's it's not walking on eggshells; it's walking on razor blades. And uh, this is really true. It's it's a pretty fine line because the the work is is so detailed um, that y you know the use of time and the way time is stretched. You you either sink or swim, and that's different every time we we do the piece because the the pieces because you you can't really rely on what happened in the last run mm -hmm. because you're really you know creating a certain uh, type of tension on stage and uh, you know sometimes in more physical pieces more sort of classical contemporary <laughs> that's, that makes sense kind of an oxymoron um, you know you train your body to to know the movement and the work and and you can just execute whereas with Nicolas Cantin's work um You rely on your your knowledge of, of the history of the process of creating the piece and performing the piece, um, but you really have to be hyper hypersensitive to to the moment, and um, you know every shift in posture becomes you know very very important angles in space. Um, you you can't really rely on anything. <laughs> you mentioned all the details, which is interesting because it's such minimalist work. Mm -hmm. How, like, do you ever feel like when, when you're performing? Do you ever feel like just jumping up and down, or just like do, do you feel that this this tension, this stillness, almost is is overbearing? No, I mean it. It it feels quite elastic, and um, especially in Belle Manière, um, because now this is um, the fourth time that we're invited to to do a different uh, show. Um, I think in the first runs that we did in Tangente, you know, I was focused on really staying true to 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 how things had been 
in the development of the piece and and now I feel this really overwhelming sense of freedom when I'm doing it to to really just kind of put my antennas on and and feel what's happening and and make micro changes um, that maybe wouldn't necessarily be noticeable from the outside eye of one run to another but that's kind of how you keep it sharp and alive just as a visual or just to draw like a little bit of an image for 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 me and, and for our listeners can you talk a little bit in terms of like the what it looks like or, or what it feels like um between the two pieces that you're going to be performing in yeah um i mean i think all three pieces are really different as far as um maybe aesthetically what they look like um but essentially they're all connected in 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 this theme of uh relationship uh and Belmaniere are you know the, both pieces are a duet a man and a woman i think Consange is uh softer it's 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 a little gentler and um I think it's a piece that's probably quite easy to like. Um, it's more of a raconte between two people, a, a mating. Belle Manière, um, it's a little... JD was, was talking earlier about a, a certain sense of violence, even though we don't see any violence in the piece. You feel that something violent may have happened between the two, the two people on stage. Um, and that's created through a little bit what I was talking about before of of um, allowing certain kind of tension to be created and, and, and playing with that. Um, the imagery in Belle Manière is probably, uh, you know, in a sense, we're two sad clowns. Um, we're constantly trying to make these sort of feeble attempts to communicate and connect with each other, but they, they just don't really seem to work. Um, we use some kind of cheap magic tricks and... Uh, constantly reaching out to each other but it's almost as though we, we don't see the other person um from what i remember in um in Belmania, there's the use of mask also which yeah. um and i felt that there it wasn't always physical masks but also like the, the masks as performers that you put on yeah yeah i mean i think you know masking in general is a you know a, a fairly clear <clears throat> use of imagery to, to portray these you know we, we put masks on every day and sometimes we take them off with certain people um so for sure there's there's that there's the the panda section which again is with this tarte à la crème and this soda bottle and i'm wearing the panda mask and and there's kind of i have a sense of power over normal in that section um versus other sections where i i don't have a mask and i'm a i'm quite a bit more vulnerable You know, you mentioned in Belmania there is this tension. How do, do we find a similar kind of tension in Miguel? Like, is there a similar energy or is it like kind of... Yeah, I mean, in Miguel as well, you know, something that's characteristic of a lot of the work that Nicola does is um, the way that he stretches time. And uh, so this is, this is... Miguel is like the most brute, the the most raw, I think, of of the three pieces, um, and and they're definitely. I mean, the the use of the 
the tension created between us is extremely important and it's much more complex because um, we're four in Miguel and so um, you know it's a little bit of an easy comparison but it really does feel like we're spinning a spider web throughout the piece and um, I mean like the, 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 the relationships are, are they do you feel that there's a progression between Grand Singe Belmanier Miguel do you feel that it, it could be seen almost as one relationship through different phases in its life? Yeah, I mean, maybe not one relationship, but for me, the pieces, although all three are, are quite different, it's almost a cycle. Um, Grand Singe, as I said earlier, is, is in a sense this, um, this meeting, and uh, Belle Manière is then this kind of, maybe not a total rupture, but... Drifting it's, apart. It, yeah. Um, and then in Miguel, we're four, and... So, it, you know, the relationships are more complex um, and perhaps less linear than in the other two pieces. Um, and the, the piece is, is maybe a bit more violent than the other two. And Belmaniere, I said earlier, we don't necessarily see the violence. Miguel, you, you see some of the violence. Um, but it also ends um, with this declaration of love. Um, so for me, that... You know, it creates a full 360-degree rotation. And um, individually, for me, as, you know, when I look at the the two pieces that I'm in, if I wanted to, to think about it being one one person, chronologically, probably Miguel would, would have been an experience before Balmaniere. But uh, I think in viewing the pieces, it's... Um, As far as for the, the, the public, it's um, really worthwhile to see the progression of Grand Singe, Belmaniere, Miguel. Which, which is interesting because it, there will be a full retrospective in one day at, um, on November 11th, yeah. um, which is great, I feel, for the audience to know because there, there is such a thread connecting all three pieces. Do you feel yeah. that it's something that could alienate uh, alienate people to, to see like all three in a row because it, it is very dense very heavy stuff would you feel that it's something that quite the opposite would make them un, like feel the pieces so much more I mean I, I think that seeing the pieces chronologically like that is is really a, a bonbon um, it's a, a great opportunity um, you know otherwise I think you can still enjoy each piece separately as well, for sure. Um, ideally, if you can see the progression, I think you just will get more out of the work. Um, but it's not, you know, it's not necessarily obligatory. It's um, it's more of just a, a really wonderful opportunity. Um, as you know, in visual art too, sometimes you want to see the the progression of 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 an artist over the years and you know you get more out of each piece as as time goes on and you know but i think that's also a personal thing for each audience member and everybody is going to see different things and make different connections and and have their own dialogue with the work and uh, nicola quentin originally hails from france yes if i'm not mistaken And you're from Vancouver? I'm actually originally? from Alberta. Alberta, sorry. There, there is also a cultural divide 
there. Do you, do you feel that this is something that has uh, nourished Nicola in his progression by using you? Um, and, you know, Normand Merci, who is from Quebec, do, do you feel that this, this has created this sort of melting pot of, of uh, creation? How, how do you feel it's influenced? Definite. Yeah, well, maybe. I, I don't know. Um, I think that I definitely could say... You know, in the beginning, so I often had a hard time understanding Nicola. Um, I speak French, uh, but he he still had his more of his French accent, and and would sp he he has pretty he speaks very well. Um, so a lot of the times he would be using vocabulary that wasn't in my vocabulary <laughs> in French um, and so in the beginning you know he would maybe be saying things during you know creation where we'd be doing runs and you know I, I would be a little bit lost but it would it really forced me to to understand him in a different way um, and so I think from the beginning because we had to work that way it, it um It's been really good for the the creative process because it's not just based on on words being passed, but there's there's this kind of deeper listening that's that's happening, which I think is really rich. Uh, I'm actually really curious, Ashley. Uh, just as you're mentioning, you're a freelance dance artist. Yes. And on that path, like, what are some of the things that you're envisioning or, or seeing for yourself or moving towards in your own path as an artist? Um, well, right now, um, I think in the past I've, I've done <laughs> for quite a few years, I would, I would be the yes girl. So I would just say yes to, to everything. And I just wanted to eat up every opportunity and get as much experience as possible. And, and now, you know, right now I'm lucky to be in a position where, um, I'm working on, you know, two or three projects at the same time um, that are, are bigger projects, so they're over more time. And I can really delve into into the work that way. And and I feel much more sane as a person. <laughs> and uh, I I realize now that, you know, less is more mm. in, in terms of that. I think that that just kind of brought to my mind the role of being an interprète, like the openness you have to have to receive, to integrate, to give back, and just, you know, like juggling different things. You might be working on different projects where there's chameleon. just like so different. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. Just having that kind of openness and that malleability in your in your mind, in your body and stuff like that. Yeah. So I think it's uh, it's awesome what we get to do as dancers. Yeah. Do you see yourself um, choreographing or creating? Like, do you have projects and stuff that you're... Yeah, um, in the past, I've um, I've presented at Tangente at Les Dan uh, Danse Bussinaire and Les Graduées mm -hmm. in 2008 and 2009. And then I've done little projects at things like Short and Sweet over the years um, involved. And um, I actually have a residency um, at Mandouvre in just outside of Paris in February for two weeks. And, and that'll be... A, personal residency for for myself and i'm really looking forward to being able to take that time and and get back into my own choreographic process and and sharpen those sensibilities which i think is also very important for for my job as an interprete mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And what's interesting you now as a choreographer, like where do you see your creative process going? Um, for me, my role as a choreographer is it, it's staying fairly personal. I'm, I'm, I'm not feeling very ambitious to, to be going and making full-length work, and, and I, I feel like that becomes a full-time job. And I'm still dancing with other people and, and being a performer. So I'm kind of cultivating, um, you know, smaller smaller projects. Um, this next project is, is quite personal. It's called Peur du Jour. And, and so I've been doing a daily journal noting um, all of the little things that... Um, that scare me in the day and so sometimes these are very banal sometimes they're logical sometimes they're illogical sometimes they're um you know emotional or or physical and um so i've been creating kind of poems based on these notations and then i'll be transferring the the cartography of, of those of those poems into the body during this residency and so i think that Yeah, my my work. I'm 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 working from a very personal place because that's the importance of it for me. Is it's right now. I'm 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 not trying to um, to have that be my full time job and to be you know sussing out big opportunities. It's it's almost um, a practice to 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 keep um, my own sense of our of creating sharp so that I can. You know, when you're dancing for you know eight or ten different choreographers in a year, you can start to feel a bit stretched, and so it's almost a recalibration for for me. I imagine that process, just keeping it for yourself, your own personal discovery, and not being so ambitious with like making full length works and pushing it out, keeps it a little more genuine for yourself and just like yeah, you know, not so yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't have like a. A big ulterior motive to, to to doing it. It's really I realize it's actually just really important for me to do that mm. um, in my role as an interprete as well. Therapeutic, maybe? Do you feel like the the this creative process that you're about to start? Do you feel that it's going to cleanse something out? Maybe. Yeah, maybe, possibly. I mean, there's still. I mean, I'm still working. Like I'm not, I'm not doing it, you know, for therapy. But for sure, I think that when you create things, you know, there there is a whole therapeutic process, or you know, sometimes it could, you know, be the, the inverse, perhaps. <laughs> um, but um, we'll we'll see. I'll I'll let you know. I think we should tell everybody where they can see Ashley performing for Nicolas Conte? It's coming very soon. Um, so the pieces will be presented in a single fashion. So on October 30th, 31st, and November 1st at 8 p.m., it will be Grand Singe at Tuzinsé. November 2nd, 3rd, and 6th of November will be uh, Belmanière. And uh, Miguel will be November 8th, 9th, and 10th. Uh, and the full trilogy, the retrospective, will be on November 11th at 3 p.m. Uh, just before we go, though, I, I have one little question. Is there, like, one choreographer that you haven't danced for that would be, like, some sort of, like, wish fulfillment or that you would just love to dance for? In Montreal? Wherever. 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 Yeah. <laughs> Think um, big. Wow. Um, it's funny. I was actually recently thinking in Montreal of uh, 
choreographers that I would want to dance for. And um, Daniel Lavillier came up, um, which it, it's funny. I mean, it's such a contrast to Nicolas Quentin's work. Um, but I, yeah, I, I love the brute physicality of that work. And I, I just think it's extremely beautiful. And I would, yeah, I would love to experience that body of work working with him um and then i'm i'm also really happy where i am right now actually and i i am at a place where i'm really really enjoying working with the people that i am working with which uh is a pretty wonderful feeling mm. great thank you so much ashley watkin you're listening to movement museum and we'll be back in just a second Welcome back to Movement Museum. I think what we'll do is we'll get moving on with our content. We have some other business to take care of. For example, uh, the White Wave Dance Festival in New York. Yeah. So I, I I wanted to take a few minutes. Hello? I wanted to take a few minutes because I actually feel a responsibility to my fellow dance artists to um, just kind of talk about uh, my experience in this last week. I was... Um, Brought down to New York by um, a dance company here in Montreal, still young emerging, Pulse and Puppets, which was created by Gabrielle Martin. Um, and she was accepted to the, the White Wave Dance Festival, but more specifically within the festival, there's, there's little festivals. And um, we were accepted to the, wi the Wave Rising series. So it's really interesting because I think that a lot of people who get accepted to go and perform in New York and a dance festival, it's super exciting and it's, it's like a huge opportunity. Um, but, you know, from what I've learned is that I think we as artists have to be very careful in terms of negotiating where we um, put our efforts and our resources and our money and our time. Because what it turned out is that white wave dance really failed on their... Um, obligations, their responsibilities, and their promises to us. And, and I think I can say for the artists who actually were in the Wave Rising series, um, just starting out with, you know, their application process, they weren't honest about us, or Gabrielle, um, having to pay to be in the festival. So that came afterwards, um, and that was a big surprise. So we had to, you know, she had to fork out a lot of money. Um, you know, we were promised a big theater with at least 200, 250 seats, and it was totally downgraded to a studio that was even smaller than Studio 303. Just a lot of disorganization. Tech was, you know, failing in, 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 in what they were telling us or telling Gabrielle that we were able to receive. And the really disappointing thing is coming from Montreal, coming from, you know, being an international company, not from New York, we also had to do our own promo because they weren't going to push that for us. So all the choreographers ha were responsible for promoting their own, the festival and their own work. And of course, being from Montreal, we're not in New York. We don't have the same connections in New York. So when you get accepted to a festival in a different city, in a big city like New York, you're excited because you want to be exposed to you know, people and have the the festival promote the show and, and bring people to their seats. So a lot of failed promises. And it was really a huge learning experience for me um, to just, you know, actually, if you're going to apply for festivals, to be very clear about what they're going to provide with you, if you have to pay to get in there, how they're going to promote and stuff like that. Because in the end, you know, like there was a lot of disappointments. And to be honest, like I'd have to say that uh, the company, Pulse and Puppet, 
invested a lot of money into bringing us down there for a week for this festival and in the end I don't really feel that it was worth that because the the festival really failed again to to keep their promises and to provide us with you know an audience um enough of an audience for us to to spend that time and money to come down there but anyways i thought i would just mention that because um it's something that did happen and i think it's easy for people to get in a situation like that because of course like i was saying it's really exciting when you get accepted to to present something especially in a big city like new york city so just to be careful of um what you get into and some of the things you sign up for because uh yeah there's a lot of stuff out there if you are not very clear with expectations and stuff like that well thanks jen that's too bad i'm sorry to hear that yeah i think it's actually really important for people to realize that like you know there's just um yeah you can really get yourself into a big crappy hole if you're not careful with what you're investing your time in and the people you're dealing with so anyways that's all i wanted to say about the white wave festival but we thank you anyways for having us there all right thanks for nothing let's move on in our program to uh some dance reviews they are piling up because seasons are in full swing right now and we jd and i have been busy bees watching a ton of dance uh i'd like to start with une idée sinon vrai by marc boivin uh in collaboration with the uh, composer anas Sokolovich, Sokolovich and uh and the performing troupe of musicians Quator Bonzini. And this was presented at Agora and it's actually still playing, which is why I wanted to start with it. It's uh it's happening this weekend. It's plays from the twenty fourth to the twenty sixth, and uh the only show that's not already sold out is the twenty sixth. So congratulations, Agora, you're having a pretty good season, it sounds like. But let's get into uh what do you think of the show, JD? Um I actually I'd just like to point out it's really interesting that they go is doing so great uh, because they're they're focusing their whole season well half season on solos Mm -hmm. which is a really risky bet and i'm glad to see that it's working out for them because you know that that was a daring choice i find and with something like unides non vrai i feel that they they managed to make a solo that wasn't a solo Mm -hmm. Uh, kind of like snake skins in a way because there is so much intertwining in a piece between uh, the, the different uh, creation aspects of a piece, be- between the music, the use of music, because the project came out first as a music project by uh, composer Anna Sokolovich. And w- she then handed her material to the Quattro Bosini, who then uh, performed the music for Marc Boivin. And he was inspired by that to create. So there is this cyclic aspect to the creation. And that really comes through in the piece I found because things just stuck together Mm -hmm. so well. There was a great collaboration between musician and performer. And the musicians were active as well. They were moving about the space. They interacted with Mark. Yeah, they weren't just sitting in the corner playing their music. And for non-dancers, I found that their presence was really strong. Absolutely. Which, you know, it's always, again, a risky bet to to use non-dancers as performers. And it's done quite often. But in this case, they are people used to the stage. But I found that the, the, the creators of the show really found a way to bring their physicality beyond just musician performers but really into a scenographic uh, pull almost. 
It's important to note maybe at this point that the the setting in Agora is different for this presentation. There's, uh, there's an audience on three sides, and uh, the piece is very three-dimensional. And it's it's interesting because you have more more of the audience is closer to the action, is closer to the sound, is closer to the visuals, and it's really a little world that they've created on this stage, um, an evolving world. Yeah, evolving, because, I mean, uh, Marc Boivin puts on many faces during mm -hmm. the piece. Um, since it's based on old-school Comédia dell'arte, uh, he uses the archetypes of Comédia dell'arte, like, um, you know, we're used to uh, Arlequin, Arlequin, Pierrot, all those characters, but they used to be archetypes rather than characters, and he tries to embody those both through uh, the costumes, uh, the, the use of lighting, the, the physical movement, And it works. Like you, you see him constantly changing skin, mm -hmm. uh, which is funny because it reminds me of Benoît Lachambre in a very different way. <laughs> But it, you know, it like he did bring very different physical qualities to to um, each of those archetypes. And some of the characters don't even perform a dance per se, but maybe a, a walk or yep. a series of poses or whatever the character demands. But they always have uh, Mark's signature on them. And, I mean, he's a fantastic mover. Like, I'm not, you know, really... Uh, I think it's important to say, if you if you don't know who Marc Boivin is, he's a tall, muscular man with strong features and, like... And shaved head. And a shaved head, yes. Yeah, which is funny because it gives him almost this uh, inhuman quality, I feel. Like, he, you know, he looks like this, uh, almost a golem to me he moves counter to your perception of him because yep. he's very fluid in his movement uh, very precise yeah and it's different than uh, than what you would expect that body to do he's also the director of our QD no? he's the president of the yes. uh, Régiment Québécois de la Danse and he's a teacher at uh, École Contemporaine de Danse de Montréal like he's a really busy really implicated man speaking of Marc Boivin it's actually he's only got a handful of choreographic credits in his belt he's usually uh, an interprète so this is kind of new territory for him in comparison to some other choreographers we're seeing these days He really, I feel that as a choreographer, I, I don't know um, if he were to choreograph on other people, how that would come about, but as a choreographer slash performer, his understanding of his body is just so precise, so uh, clear, that I feel that, you know, it, it just shone through throughout the work. And one thing I'd like to mention also is the costumes. Absolutely. Uh, for me, those were just so impeccable. Uh, he actually starts with this big, long brown coat. Uh, it's floor length and it's wide at the base. Oh, and the movement, like the way he uses it to sort of amplify and hide his movement at the same time at first is just really powerful. And then he eventually takes off the coat and it's an ever-changing costume because like he removes layers, transforms layers into something new. He has these zip-up pants which just become... They're so versatile. Shorts. And it's. I felt that it was a really clever show, which mm -hmm. um, I always like saying about a show and I don't get to say that <laughs> that many times because I feel that in this time the craftsmanship was just very present and mm -hmm. it, it, you know it, it's very nice the costume adjustments like were so subtle but so effective like the, the the changeover happened instantly and it was a complete transformation from character to character just by changing the color of his sleeves and putting on a cap he was a completely different mover a completely different character it was really uh, it was really a joy to see that transformation 
So it's a really powerful piece. I, I strongly suggest people, and also for the music. We haven't talked oh. much about the music, but the music is really powerful, and the way it's combined to the movement works. And I feel that people who are interested in music or interested in it's it's a quatuor of strings, and it's it's beautiful. Absolutely, and I'm not uh, I'm not that schooled in music, but I really enjoyed it. It was unique in this in their style, and just really beautiful, and really uh, it had a lot of character. Again, like the changing characters and the changing personas Mark puts on, the music also changes quite frequently in beautiful ways. I'll use this opportunity to uh, to go back to Snakeskins, which I barely got to talk about last time, but uh, which again has had this theme of uh, ever changing skin, ever changing persona. Um, and it's a show that I mentioned how much I loved it because it, in a very different way to uh, Marc Boivin's show, the, the visuals created by, uh, by Benoit Lachambe sometimes were just so powerful. And I mean, his physicality also, he was constantly changing his physicality throughout the, the skins, quote unquote. Um, but there, there is an aspect of visual art in uh, Snake Skins that was just so powerful. Uh, the, the show started with this, this sort of uh, structure um, with, with cables just running through it. And it, it gave this impression of just going through a tunnel. Or, you know, if, you, if you've seen Star Wars, when they go into hyperspeed and you just see the stars zooming by really quickly and creating lines... That's basically the effect it had, and it was just uh, like uh, fantastic. It was powerful. I'm kind of left uh, speechless, like trying to talk about what this looked like, um, and just just the, the constant change. There were scenes that didn't work as well as others, um, but one of them where he was suspended to that structure uh, by cables, and not, not so much suspended, but he was held by by cables and just like letting his body almost fall off his feet and he was dancing in such a beautiful fashion um it's something that i never seen benoit lachon before it really caught my attention so people if you haven't seen any of benoit lachon's work if he presents a piece again or you know if he uh, represents snake skins i strongly suggest going to see it all right, so we have some time left, and I'm going to do uh, one more review before we say goodbye. It's called Tête à Tête by Stefan. Oh, my goodness, JD, you're going to have to help me with this one. I think it's pronounced Gwadyshevsky. All right. Uh, this was presented at the Center uh, Centre Phi um, as part of the uh, Festival de Nouveau Cinema. And uh, this it was only presented for two days, October 19th and 20th. And it was actually presented from 3 p.m. to 10 p.m. because the show itself is only about 15, 20 minutes long. And you go in one by one. Uh, it's an individual performance experience with one performer. And it's interesting because I can see why it was programmed as part of a, um, as a, part of a cinema festival and... It, it, it qualifies as cinematic, although it is live performance. And it's not quite dance, it's more movement. Um, it's more of a movement piece, which relies heavily on, on technology in terms of lights and screens and um, video and sound. What happens is you come into the room and you sit down. You're, you're guided by somebody with a flashlight, the technician, the assistant with the flashlight. And you sit down and you put your face in a mask that's embedded in this little wall. And you watch the performer... 
and uh, the performer's name is Peter James, and he was really strong. He's a, he's an older man, and he's really engaged with his body. And there's a f- there's a few things that happen on stage that that um, move around the space and move within proximity to you. So you have to be an active watcher to kind of uh, catch his next action, which made me think of, of cinematography in the sense that it does direct your eye to what they want you to see. Um, the other thing that was really interesting, you're sitting there wearing headphones, so you have this kind of this big soundscape and every once in a while dialogue. Oh, and you got to choose if it was French or English, which I appreciated. And uh, so you have some dialogue, you have some sound, some soundscapes happening, and you're engaged visually, you're engaged auditorily, and, and you're also engaging your sense of smell. He lights matches, and you can smell the matches, which is really interesting because that's something that you can't do with cinema, obviously. You can't smell what's happening on the screen, so I thought that was amazing. Um, There's also, of course, in this scenario, there's this discussion, um, there's this thematic of, of... loneliness of you and I uh, there's this discussion of space of being alone in space and being together alone in space um, and just little themes like this there's there's some some moments that that were detached for me from that from that subject but it really didn't bother me <laughs> I really have very few criticism for the show I think it was really amazing and and the what sold me on it is of course when you're in this well, you have this opportunity when you're one-on-one for audience interaction, and that can go that can go several different ways. But I was really happy with the way that Stefan chose to accept that challenge because he did it in a gentle way, in an inviting way, and in in a way that really um, makes you feel like it was necessary that you become involved in the performance. And I don't want to say too much because I want to encourage people to go uh, and see the show or, or have this experience because it was a really good one that left me smiling and thoughtful and I, I can't wait for his next project. I'd like to mention that both uh, Stefan Gwodziewski, the choreographer of Tete Tete, and his performer, Peter James, are both performing in the retrospective at uh, Nicolas Quentin. Uh, Stefan Gwodziewski is in Grand Singe, the first piece, and Peter James, who did the dramaturgy for both uh, Grand Singe and um, Belmanière, is also performing in Miguel. So they're really interesting creators. I feel that... Um, you know, it, it's it's really interesting how to see how it's all connected because those people all have the same very theatrical approach to movement where they create really strong impressions with very few things. Wonderful. Thanks for the heads up. Not that I wasn't already sold on Nicolas Quentin's performances, but there we go. More reasons to go. Um, so I think that's all for Movement Museum here today on CKUT 90.3 FM. I'm Alison Burns, and I've been here with uh, Jen Doan and Jay-Z Papillon. And uh, I think what we're going to do for the end of the show is play uh, a track from the, the piece we were speaking about earlier, the Une idée sinon vraie by Marc Boivin. This is the Quator Bonzini, and uh, with a little extract from the show. Enjoy. <laughs> 